0: Content warning: There will be some Santa truthing this episode.
1: So yes, if you have youngsters with you, unless you want them to have access to certain information by the end of this broadcast, yeah. cut out now. Listen to something else. Is Noddy Holder one of the three wise men? Will Frozen two make more sense if I watch it again?
0: Well, I'm already thoroughly in the Christmas spirit, Ollie, because the other day, Martin and I went to the Spam Museum in Austin, Minnesota.
1: Of course you did.
0: A top-notch Spam Museum, I must say. It's the
1: best one I've been to, I think. Yep. I mean, what else in the TripAdvisor list happens in Austin, Minnesota for you to get to the Spam Museum?
0: Oh, there's a really big sculpture of a cow.
1: Right. I can see why you went to the Spam Museum now. Yep. We went to both.
0: (laughs) They had a, a very good gift shop. And they also had their Christmas tree up and it was decorated with little plush spams and spam branded fly swats. My favourite exhibit was this plaque that said there are over 13 flavours of spam. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it didn't say there are 14 flavours of spam. So mm. what happened between the 13th and the 14th? Well, I
2: posited that the, 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 number, the number of flavours of spam is the transcendental number like pi. Like, you, in order to list it, you have to go to, like, an infinite
1: number of digits. No, I know exactly what happened there. It's the same as when, you know, if we were writing a press release for our show and we're, like, over 1,000 thousand five star reviews on iTunes, when you write it, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, do you? So they know that when they wrote the plaque, there were 13. What if there are 17 now? They don't want it to look hopelessly out of date by saying there are 13.
2: Or maybe they have, like, seasonal flavours, which they, like, only have for a couple of months, and then it goes. So they're like, well, sometimes we've got Can't 15, on a sometimes it's 14.
0: But then you say there are at least 13 flavours of Spam.
1: Fine, but they may not have the budget to employ someone with your degree of linguistic flair, Helen, to write the plaque for them.
0: But they did sell 12 packs of different flavours of Spam.
1: Oh, they did? Okay.
0: And if I hadn't lived out of a suitcase, someone would be getting one for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Here is a question for those of you who get excited by Starbucks having a fucking red cup. It's from Matt, yeah. who says As I was snacking on some Christmas chocolate, I began to wonder why it was so many Christmas treats are peppermint flavored. Helen, answer me this Is peppermint simply a flavor that caught on over the winter holiday season? Or is there a deeper connection to the holidays? Does the cool sensation of peppermint bring winter to mind? Or is there a different symbolic connection?
0: Not that I could find, but I did find that there's an amazing amount of bullshit around about the origins of peppermint candy canes. And that is people have retconned the classic red and white candy cane with the the little bent top. Mm. And they're saying, no, it's a J for Jesus. And the white represents (laughs) the purity of Jesus. And the red represents the blood he shed And the peppermint represents the hyssop plant that was used for purifying in the Bible.
1: Right, but actually I'm imagining it was like a gift given away by FAO Schwartz as a promotional item. (coughs) Am I close? (laughs)
0: Uh, I'm sorry to say, it's really not that interesting. And it is American as well, because I think in Britain, peppermint is not a festive flavour. I think orangey chocolate is our festive flavour or just the whole mince pie, Christmas cake, Christmas pudding, fruity splodge or the mulled wine. Mulled wine, that's the biggie, isn't it? Yeah. Flush your toilet with some mulled wine to get into the festive spirit. Yeah. Candy canes have been around for a really long time. Like The history of that is quite fuzzy, which is why people were probably like, well, in 1670, Bishop Christmasford uh, made a <laughs> Jesus-shaped sugar stick. But um, people used to give babies sticks of sugar to suck on to kind of soothe their gums. And they were originally just nothing flavour.
1: That's actually not so crazy because they still do no. that. When we had Toby, the midwife came round. She needed to make him cry to see whether he could cry. Okay, can he? He can. He very much can. Congratulations. <laughs> A genius. <laughs> um, but then, you know, once she'd done that to soothe him, she had some sugar water, mm. uh, which she gave him, which is the only thing I guess they give babies apart from milk.
0: So... Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint where it came about and where the stripes came in, because also seaside rock, it's basically seaside rock, isn't it? Except commercialised for Christmas.
1: Yeah, but also the cane shape. I mean, I've never done this, but I, I suspect people do or used to hang them on Christmas trees, right? So it is, it's is—it's bespoke for Christmas, whereas rock, you couldn't put that on a Christmas tree, really, without causing the whole thing to fall down.
0: It, it is heavy. Um there is a Swedish sweet called uh, Polka kreis, which was invented in the mid-19th century, which is a mint-flavoured candy cane. So maybe that ended up in the US because there's quite a lot of uh, Swedish immigration to there and Swedish stuff in the Christmas elements. But like, there are a couple of people that, get a lot of the credit for the modern day stripy curved candy cane dominance. Uh, one of them is a guy called Bob McCormack. He had a company that in the first half of the 20th century was one of the world's largest peppermint candy cane producers selling half a million candy canes per day at their peak. So he either invented the stripes or just popularized them. And so then everyone was like, we must put stripes on, we must put mint in. And then the hook Again, it's hard to find who originated the hook because there's so much bullshit. And it's definitely not a hook for Jesus or to represent a shepherd's staff in the nativity. But no one was that great at doing the hooks without them breaking until Father Gregory Keller, who invented something called the Keller machine that put crooks in candy canes. And he was the brother-in-law of Bob McCormack, the popularizer of candy canes. But um, Bob McCormack, the populariser of candy canes, had been trying to bend the candy canes, but about 22% of them broke and had to be thrown away. And so his brother-in-law, father Gregory Keller, automated that process with the Keller machine. And uh, thus, candy canes were perfectly candy cane shaped every time. So I think it is just like once that becomes an emblem of Christmas, everyone is going to jump on it, aren't they?
1: Because they were like, well, that's Christmas and we must make money from it too. One thing I would say for candy canes is if I found one from last Christmas at the back of the cupboard, I'd still eat it. I wouldn't be concerned about the best before date on a candy cane. I'd probably eat one that's 10 years old.
0: Yeah, they don't really go off. There are a couple of uses. Like you could stir a festive coffee with one or a festive hot chocolate. That could be quite nice. I'm very fond of peppermint bark, which is just chocolate with a smashed up candy cane in it. Mm -hmm. I looked for a really long time, I think an abnormally long time, to find why mint specifically... And there's no solid explanation that I was satisfied with. I I think Matt might be right when he says, does the cool sensation of peppermint bring winter to mind? I think for some people that might be it.
1: But it's an evergreen herb, is it? Or uh, no more so than like basil?
0: Mint is quite hardy, but also you you can make mint oil as a flavouring and that's quite stable. So I wonder whether it was partly just, it's a very reliable flavouring. The
1: world's most popular essential oil, Helen, I read, peppermint oil.
0: Also, maybe it cuts through the richness a bit. If you're having a time of rich foods and sweetness, maybe it helps you eat more of those things. This isn't related, but in the course of researching this, I learnt that artificial Christmas trees were popularised in the 1930s by a toilet brush factory that was making them on its <laughs> spare
1: machines. That is absolutely brilliant. Right? Because you always wonder, don't you, what do you do with the Christmas tree when it's finished?
0: Scrub the book. <laughs> I guess...
1: <laughs> I guess the idea of an artificial tree is that you do recycle it and actually use it again the following year. But at some point, yeah. when you're like, well, oh, it's looking a bit ropey now, yeah, turn right. it into Christmas toilet brushes for all the family.
0: <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Back whence <winter> it came.
1: <laughs> Hello, Helen
2: and Ollie. It's Daryl here in the broads of Norfolkshire. I haven't eaten my Christmas pudding yet, but I will do. And I've uh, just looked at the of tasty brandy sauce contains real brandy. Just wondering, how much brandy sauce would I need to drink to get drunk?
1: It is an interesting subject this because, you know, the assumption that I'd always made and the myth that is spread around is that you can't get drunk from alcohol in food because the heat burns the alcohol off.
0: But is brandy sauce cooked?
1: Well, you put your finger on the issue. It's true that alcohol gets burned off if, for example, you leave it for two hours baking, then yes, after two hours of baking, only 10% of the alcohol is left behind. Uh, But a study published in the Journal of American Dietetic Association reported that adding alcohol to a hot liquid for a short time before serving, as you do in the case of brandy sauce, could leave as much as 85% of the alcohol in the finished dish, which is why I got hammered on the ratatouille I made last night. Oh, how much brandy was in your ratatouille? It was red wine. But I just, I'd, I'd started cooking it and I added like, you know, a, a decent amount, <laughs> a glass full maybe. And then I did, we got delayed. My wife was changing the baby and it was beginning to, you know, when the tomato store starts reducing too much and the chunks start looking a bit chunky. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to put more tin tomatoes on this now because it's going to be a bit watery. Ah, uh, go on, stick some more wine on it. I put another glass uh, of wine on, and I honestly, I think I got drunk on the recipe. It was great. It really perks out your vegetables. Yeah. So uh, here, for example, is a typical recipe. Uh, this is from the BBC Food website for brandy sauce. Right. It's only two parts. One, melt the butter and stir in the flour. Cook for two minutes, then stir in the milk. Bring to the boil, stirring all the time. Simmer gently for 10 minutes.
0: So it's like a white sauce with brandy in it.
1: Two, stir in the brandy. And serve with Christmas pudding. That's it. It's hardly been cooked at all, so of course you can get pissed on it. So basically, I reckon you could get drunk on one glass of brandy sauce. Although, would you want to? Well, the issue is could you drink a glass of butter and flour if it didn't have brandy in
0: it? (laughs) And I would say
1: no. No thanks.
0: You don't want to just drink a load of white sauce. What is wrong with you?
1: (laughs) Ideally not.
0: Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Marianne, and I live in Crewe, in Cheshire, and I have a question relating to my eldest son. He still believes in Father Christmas, which is all very lovely, but he is in his first year of high school. And I don't know what the best thing to do is.
1: Should I tell him that Santa is made up, potentially spoiling his Christmas, or... Should I leave him with his belief that Santa is real, potentially opening up to be laughed at by his schoolmates who probably realise that Santa isn't real? I don't know what to do. I don't want to kill the magic of Christmas for him, but I don't want him to come across as being immature at school. What should I do? Helen and Ollie, help me, please.
0: Oh. So her son, if he's uh, in his first year at high school, he's uh, 11, 12?
1: Yeah, that's the age that I took it to mean. Yeah, beginning secondary school, as as I called it when I started. And I'd say that roughly is the... I mean, it's awful, isn't it, to have a hard line in the sand on of, of should. But I'd say roughly at the point where you might be about to develop pubes, that is the point at which you should probably not believe in Santa anymore. And it is true that most of his contemporaries will have twigged.
0: Is he a true believer? Because you would think he had been spoiled by friends of his at that point. Or does he just realise that there's some benefit to him in maintaining (laughs) the belief?
2: Does he just think that his parents won't buy him presents if he uh, doesn't pretend to believe
1: in Santa?
0: That's the fear.
1: Or maybe he just chooses to believe. Like people who go to watch a band performing and they're terrible, but because they're fans, they say it was a great gig and it sounded great. And if you looked at it objectively, you'd say, no, it sounded awful.
0: I'd imagine that's the case if anyone goes to see Bob Dylan live in the last 30-odd years. Exactly.
1: But they'd already decided they wanted to be in the same room as him, so they've enjoyed it. And I just wonder if, like, you know, if you love Santa, maybe your son, Marianne, just loves Santa, loves the idea of Christmas, the way Christmas makes him feel. And so he's choosing to believe, which is a subtly different thing to actually believing.
0: I think if he is a true believer, it's kind of sweet in a way, because there's so much to contradict the fantastical in this world. Mm. And it feels quite innocent, but on the other hand, I very much understand Marianne 's concern yeah. that her son will be destroyed at school.
1: It is sort of sweet if we lived in a world where other people weren't going to bully him for this, but I think we have to be honest and say it, it might cause an issue there and and the reason for that it's not to do actually i don't think with the kind of a sense of it being kind of wimpish that you still believe in in lovely things i don't think it's that from your eleven year old mm. contemporaries. I think it's that the process of reasoning that Father Christmas doesn't exist is about your brain developing rationality.
0: And realising your parents lied to you. Yes.
1: And so what he's signalling to his contemporaries is, I'm not as smart as you. That's what you want to avoid because I'm sure he is very smart, Marianne. But, you know, if he's going to exhibit this tendency, that is what they're going to think.
0: What are you doing now that you have a child that is old enough to understand Christmas? How are you playing it? Are you doing the Santa thing? Are you, like, staunchly rational? What's your plan? Yeah,
1: I don't really see that it's something that I could opt out of. I just like it too much. And I I know that it didn't damage me. And I know that it's really fun for my son. So, yeah, we're doing the Santa thing. In fact, uh, Harvey met Father Christmas for the first time last week.
0: Oh, did they hit it off? Uh,
1: (laughs) They didn't. Well, Santa was keen... Uh, Harvey was terrified, I think would be the word that I'd use.
0: That is terrifying.
1: Being there as the parent coercing your child to go and sit on an old man's knee did make me (laughs) realise that so much about the experience is completely turning on its head everything we tell our children not to do.
0: What about stranger danger and things? Yeah.
1: Approach this strange old man, let him give you a sweet, sit on his knee and whisper a secret into his ear. That's what we were telling him to do. And he quite rightly was like, what the what's this you know yeah when we went in there he was scared because it was a big celebrity i mean that's the thing you can't underestimate the power of santa as a star um so the idea that you know behind this wall of the marquee at the uh, hatfield rotary club (laughs) would be sitting an international celebrity was daunting for him but then when he saw him it was genuine terror not because he was famous but because the whole experience was just like this is weird
0: it's a lot of pressure he
1: ran for the exit but we dragged him back and, uh, and made him comply. <laughs> oh,
2: God. Sounds festive. I remember when we went to visit um, Helen's brother when her niece was... I think hell, just under she? two. And I, I dressed as Santa for fun. And she Did not saw me, ran away, hid in a separate room and cried for like two hours. It was very sad.
1: Was it just though But you were shitting on all her dreams of what Father Christmas was? I mean, I like to think she I
2: was massively exceeding her dreams of what Santa could be. Maybe that's what she did, just blew her mind.
0: I think her problem was him having a fake beard over his real beard. That's a weird look. It's a weird look.
1: Yes. Well, this actually, the, the Hatfield Rotary Club Santa had an excellent real beard. And he was a very nice man as well. Um, and I almost felt bad that my child was scared of him, but he was. He must get it all the time there. Yeah. And also, we went on a Friday, so we had the time to slowly pacify harvey and actually by the end of like 15 minutes they were chatting and it was useful because we got to know what harvey really wanted for christmas because obviously he asked father christmas for a thing and what he asked for was a yellow train and then he realized to his panic after we'd left that he hadn't specified he wanted a yellow train that drives itself with yellow buttons oh well, Santa will know that. Yeah, well, this is it. So I was in a difficult position. I was like, do I push this too far and say, like, Santa knows everything and turn him into this weird godlike thing? Or, you know, do I use it as a sort of get-out clause if I can't find a yellow train that drives itself with yellow buttons? Mm. So so what I said was, because I'm fairly sure I've seen this in a Smith's catalogue, I said, oh, yeah, I'm sure Santa knew that you meant one that drives itself. But um, he may not have understood that you wanted the yellow buttons. <laughs> We'll have to see.
2: (laughs) Communicate more clearly, Harvey.
1: (laughs) So, you know, I think if if Santa delivers a yellow train that drives itself with black buttons, I think I still haven't shattered the uh, illusion there.
0: Maybe he'll have forgotten about the button specifics by the time of Christmas. What do you think Marianne should do, though? I was wondering whether she should get her son to watch some Christmas films.
1: What, Bad Santa?
0: Or even Gremlins. sort of a good age for gremlins anyway if he's Mm. if he's not too scared of things i was watching it from about seven i think then he can kind of come to it in his own time and also not feel too embarrassed because he's been by himself watching films and the realization may have slowly dawned on him
1: if you want to sit down and have a chat with him something that went viral on facebook a few years ago but i don't know how wise this is and moms in america love this thing i don't know if this is a good idea or not but What one woman said she did with her son who was a believer and a little bit too old is she sat down in a booth at a coffee shop and in a kind of conspiratorial tone to her child said, you know how you're always saying how can Santa be in all these places all at once because we see him at the shopping mall and we see him when we go to the theme park and we see him in the library? Mm. Well, the truth is there are lots of Santas and I think you are now old enough and smart enough to be a Santa yourself.
0: An 11-year-old Santa? What?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the, she doesn't say put on a silly beard and go and have children sit on your knee. What she says being a Santa is, is basically selflessly buying a gift for someone else without them realising it came from you. So you then turn... It's, oh. it's, it's all tied in. You can see why this went viral in the States because it's all tied in with the kind of Christian message, basically. But the example she gave was... They had a neighbour who was like this really aggressive lady who really hated children. (laughs) And she came out every day to get her newspaper and was really rude to all the kids, but she never had any shoes on. So her son decided that what she really needed was a pair of slippers. So he bought her a pair of slippers, left it on her doorstep. She never knew where they were from. The next time they went past, she was wearing the slippers. And he got the sensation of being a Santa, like doing good for the community, and slowly broke down the myth of what Santa was in his own way.
2: Isn't the simple way to say, yeah, there is this magic Santa, but he only comes to really little kids and when you get a bit older, you get too old for it.
0: Right, is the cut off e- age 10?
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: thereabouts. You're you're too old for Santa to visit you this year because he's only really interested in helping little children.
0: Primary <laughs> well, school only. <laughs> yeah, I think,
1: I think
2: so. I mean, you might need to punch it up a bit, but I think that's a pretty good message.
1: Well, what you shouldn't do is what Chris did. Uh, he's written in to say... On Christmas Eve, when I was nine and my sister was five, I told her that I'd heard on the news that Father Christmas had died.
0: Oh, God, it sucks being the younger sibling.
1: Uh, <laughs> Helen, answer me this. What's the worst joke you've ever played on a member of your family?
0: I fucking wish. Remember, I was the youngest by quite some way, which means I was the most vulnerable in most danger of pranks when I was young, which is why I grew up cynical, just as a form of self protection. Mm. Trust no one. Uh, So I don't think I was particularly good at jokes because of this. You can't become great when you're just in defensive mode all the time. One thing that I did enjoy, though, we had kind of prank gifts in my family. And um, for years different people would get given this box of pastels like art chalks so they'd be wrapped up and like you'd think you got through christmas and then like dad would open the oven door and pull out this uh, (laughs) wrapped box of pastels
1: but it wasn't the actual christmas present they gave young helen right you did get a real christmas present too
0: yeah this was like it, it would go to different members of the family as well you had to kind of palm it off onto someone else and also there was one year where um Uh, My dad used to hide a brick in my brother's school bag because he had to walk up a big hill to get to school. And um, so my brother painted a face on it and uh, wrapped it up and gave it to my dad. And then it lived under one of the stereo speakers, very happily for years, propping it
2: up. Did you get pranked?
0: My eldest brother did tell me that the world was going to end in 1992. So I spent like the three years preceding 1992 just like shit scared about it.
1: That's horrible. Now, was that a prank or was that just kind of like filling a Sunday afternoon? Like, let's just convince Helen of something. I mean, it's not really a prank, is it? Right, you can, probably. They probably just organically started chatting to you and they're like, oh my God, she's so vulnerable. She's going to go for this. Let's embellish. Yeah. yeah.
0: My mum taught me some of her boarding school pranks and she got me to do one where you sew up the legs of someone's pyjamas. I, I chose my brother, Andy. Um, you sew up their legs at the knee and then fill them with talcum powder. So when they put their legs into their pyjamas, they're like, wait, it won't go in. And then this cloud of talcum powder comes up. <laughs> it's not a great prank though, that is it? That sounds
1: like a
2: really sweet prank.
0: It's a bit shit. Yeah, though. yeah
1: I I agree. I went to boarding school, and if you really wanted to victimise someone, you'd do a shit in their bed. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't put about it in their pajamas. People <laughs> <I didn't> actually <laughs> like, do that. Well, no, I didn't. But, I, you know, if you really wanted to make an impact, if you wanted everyone to see a kid struggling, that's what you'd do. Children are absolutely merciless. One thing that I do remember that we did was um, we took a, a friend of mine who was very gullible and always trying to impress everybody by kind of acquiescing to stuff and told him that, um, we were really into theme park rides at the time, we were like 11 years old, told him that we'd built a simulator in the bedroom. And, um, you know, it was like a load of dressing gown cords uh, that he had to hold onto as straps, and various different things he had to put his fingers in, so it was different sensations and stuff. And it all led up to him being put into a cupboard, so that we could move the cupboard around and simulate him being on a plane or whatever it was. But anyway, after a few minutes of that, we just put the cupboard down so that the door that opened out was face down into the ground so he couldn't get out. Um, and then there were three little breathing holes on the back of the cupboard and Lewis Flexer came in and farted through them.
2: That's monstrous. Yeah. British Public School's send shit.
0: Pranks just, I find them hard to enjoy.
2: they really bother. Boll- my family wasn't a pranky family. I once gave my dad, and my dad asked for a glass of red wine and I uh, gave him a glass of water with some red food colouring in <laughs> And he was like, what's this? Can I have some wine? And so and I went and got him some wine. If you've got a question, then email your question. If you got, got a question, then email your question. Answer me this podcast at Answer me this podcast at
1: Here's a question from Mitch in Portland, Oregon, who says, The traditional Thanksgiving dinner in America is a turkey with gravy, stuffing, potatoes, sides of vegetables and cranberry sauce. From what I've read, that sounds a lot like a British Christmas dinner. Yeah. Uh, I would add the revoltingly euphemistic pigs in blankets, and then yes. Uh, I'm especially surprised, continues Mitch, that both dinners have cranberry sauce, which is otherwise rarely eaten, at least in America. There are some differences, though. For example, Americans tend to mash our potatoes for Thanksgiving and serve them with gravy, whilst Britons appear more likely to roast their potatoes. Can you imagine mashed potato at Christmas, Helen? I'd torch the place. <laughs> different families add different foods, but desserts appear to be the biggest distinction. Americans have pumpkin pie and Ugh. pecan pie. Okay. Okay. Uh, whilst Britons have Christmas pudding and mincemeat pie. I mean, equally disgusting, also, to be uh, fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like mince pie. That's a good pie. Mitch helpfully then does our job for us in the following sentence. Uh, Americans won't know what those are, so contrary to what Americans call pudding, Christmas pudding appears to be a fruit dessert that is aged, spice, and liquid, while mince pie is a sweet pie with a fruit filling. Thanks for that, Mitch.
0: Don't mince-splain to us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, he says, the staple components of American Thanksgiving and British Christmas dinners, turkey, gravy, stuffing, potatoes, veggie and cranberry sauce can't just be coincidentally identical. Can they? Particularly the cranberry sauce. Can it? I know that turkeys are American... Uh, They were introduced to the
0: US from, I think, uh, Central America.
1: But they may have become popular in British Christmas dinners before they became Thanksgiving staples. So Helen, answer me this. Did one of us rip off our dinner from the other?
0: A little bit, but it is sort of related that both of these dinners are based on what food is available at those times of year. Things like Christmas ham in America came from Britain. Although America, I think, reasonably rejected Christmas pudding and uh, associated things.
1: Given the opportunity for it not to be your tradition, you would reject that food.
0: I could be wrong in this, but I feel like cranberries, although they they were not unknown in Britain, I feel like they weren't really big in Britain until like the mid to late 90s when Delia made them trend and they sold out and that got cranberries a lot of press.
1: I don't know. I remember cranberry sauce being part of our Christmas dinner my whole life. But... That was cranberries. Were a thing that came in a jar from Ocean Spray. I, yeah, a fresh cranberry being used in any way, no.
0: But like sour fruit sauces, that is like a very old thing to have with meat. So yeah. I remember having like red currant jelly or quince. I, there's lots of fruity sauces that we had with meat. So I think cranberry was just like oh, there's another one. Turkey wasn't super common as the Christmas meat in Britain until the 1950s because it was really, really expensive and also in the 1950s refrigeration was a lot more common so people could have these birds that would putress whereas before if they had goose or game you could hang it Mm. But apparently the first person in the UK to eat a turkey for Christmas was Henry VIII. So that's going back to the 16th century. But that's
1: not a massive surprise because when you say he ate a turkey for Christmas... He ate
0: one of every animal at Christmas.
1: He ate the entire animal (laughs) kingdom throughout December. One of those happened to be a turkey on Christmas Day.
0: A regular Noah's Ark in his bowels. Mm. And so turkeys were around um, because they had been brought to Europe by um, the Spanish, who had been over to Central America and brought a load of things back in the 16th century. But the more common meats for people to eat in that period in Britain were like ham, goose, wild boar, game, venison, or the poor would eat humble pie, which is a pie made out of venison entrails because that was what the rich people discarded. Whereas turkey was uncommon as a Thanksgiving meat until after 1800. It wasn't unknown, but people were just like, well, we killed what birds were around and had some fish and stuff. So it wasn't really a traditional thing till the 1850s, apparently, in uh, Thanksgiving. So there.
1: It's an odd bird to focus on, really, when I understand the goose and the duck and that kind of stuff, because not just because you can hang them up, but because they are so fatty and like full on strong flavours that you think if you're having a treat, like that's what it is, isn't it? It's a feast, right? You're getting everyone round. Why go for literally the blandest poultry? I
0: think the reason why is because it's big.
1: Yes, it is big. Goose doesn't
0: have that much meat on it. It's got a very big cavity and then a lot of fat and not actually much meat. Um, people did used to eat capons, which are castrated roosters, because those are big. But the person who made turkey fashionable in the UK was Edward VII. Uh, so I think that was the late 19th, early 20th century. And apparently before that, the big bird on the tables of the royal court was peacock.
1: Hmm. Showy, but tasteless, I should think.
0: I'd imagine peacock is not the tastiest meat. So after that, people copied the royals, but it was still like kind of unobtainably expensive uh, for the first half of the 20th century, apparently. Um, whereas now a turkey costs average 1.7 hours of people's wages, in 1930s, it cost a week's wages. So most households would still have eaten a goose or rabbit or possibly beef.
1: And actually, it's also about the tradition of doing it every year and making the things every year. So, when I, so I grew up as an only child, but when I go back to my wife's family now, there's three sisters. Their Pigs in Blankets production line is really quite incredible.
0: I admire that. It's
1: because they've been doing it for 25 years. So, like, they know each other's it is like watching McDonald's <laughs> training people <laughs> into an assembly line uh it's extraordinary can you film it <laughs> I should this year although they do have to refer to Delia Smith's Christmas which is in the corner and they're, they're making four recipes on the same day from that one book and it's covered in gravy and they have to keep flicking between the pages making it more covered in gravy
0: as Delia would want to be anointed I don't know which. Ever helped your mum build a website? It is the kind of torment from which there is no respite. If she asks what's a widget again, I will kill her with a rusty spike, or a brick, or a spade, or a chainsaw. But
1: Squarespace is so easy, even your mum can use it. She can drag and drop, and cut and paste. That's all there is to it. So Helen, put that spike down. I beg you, for Christ's sake, don't do it. Sorry, mum.
0: Thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring. Thank you very much, very, 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 very much.
1: <laughs> Why not buy all your family a box of Squarespace this Christmas?
0: No one wants the green one. <laughs> no, all the Squarespace's are the same. None of them is the peanut cracknel. I also think it can be quite nice to buy someone a website for Christmas or make them a website, even if it like a fun little joke website or I made a website for my dad's birthday with his sculptures on yes. for his marketing campaign that I think he's yet to initiate, but he talks about it frequently. And uh, it's a present that's not going to end up in landfill.
1: (laughs) Uh, Something I noticed is that uh, Squarespace are sponsors of the Hella Mega Tour. It's kind of like, you know when um, Busted went on tour with McFly? McBusted? Yeah, yeah. it's like that, but for college rock bands. Um, So uh, Green Day, Weezer and Fall Out Boy are doing a tour together. And what was really impressive about that announcement, I thought, is that all three of those bands have Squarespace websites. Really? If you said, what, what's the thing that Weezer, Fallout Boy and Green Day have in common? You'd say, okay, three chords, hair, I don't know. No, <laughs> they all have Squarespace websites.
0: Wow. Even though all of them, I think, predate the uh, prime of the Squarespace website.
1: Yes, but then that might be why they needed updating. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? If you've got yeah. an old as fuck website that had some webmaster design it for you and now you've lost touch with them. Just get yourself a Squarespace website. You can have it up and running in days.
0: I'm really happy to think of Pete Wentz choosing which template to do on <laughs> Squarespace and putting a tag cloud in the sidebar and stuff. Yeah. If you're in a band or even if you're not in a band and you want to use Squarespace and you want to get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain, then you can do that by going to squarespace.com slash answer and using our discount code answer. answer. Here's a question from Rob who says, I'm watching the film Santa Buddies. Ollie, answer me this. How on earth do they get the dogs to move their mouths as if talking? I've not seen Santa Bodies, I'd never heard of it until this question, but I feel just from this brief question, I've got a fairly full picture of what it is.
1: Uh, it was a 2009 straight-to-DVD Disney movie. Uh, it has a Rotten Tomato score of 20%. Mm. And it is the ninth film in the Airbud franchise, which is about a sports-playing <laughs> Golden Retriever.
0: Of course. <laughs> Pretty cute cover art. And uh, the strapliners. is, here comes Santa
1: Paws. Well, this film looks fucking appalling. I watched the trailer and it's just like a sort of moving Hallmark card. In the trailer, there is zero action. And it's not even really cute. They don't say anything funny. They just say, quick, go over there. I'll rescue you. Stuff like that. Anyway, to answer Rob's question... Uh, they made the animals' mouths move the same way, basically, that uh, filmmakers have made animals' mouths move ever since, roughly, Babe. Mm. Uh, which was... Uh, I mean, they won a special effects Oscar for that film, which, astonishingly, was 1995, but was all CGI. Oh, um, so what they did with Babe, what they pioneered there, is they filmed real animals, um, but then they used a computer-modelled version of a scan of the sculptures that they'd used to create the animatronics. Uh, because as well as having animal actors, they had animatronic versions of those animals to do complex things. And so they had a really lifelike, detailed computer model, which they could then merge with the real footage. And even though it was 1995 and they didn't have a lot of computer power, because they were using Windows 95 <laughs> to make Babe. Can you imagine how awful that would have been? <laughs> imagine Clippy popping up. It looks like you're trying to make an animated film. Um, <laughs> what they did is they just used like, the snout or the dog's mouth or the eyes, the eyebrows. They take a little piece of it and superimpose the computer imagery on top of the real thing. So it was the real animal apart from the mouth, which they could manipulate. And essentially, that they haven't really changed technology since then. That's what they use in all these movies. So they're real dogs. They're trained animal actors, so they can get them to look sad or irritated or happy or, you know, whatever. I think possibly they get lots of shots of them barking and chewing and manipulate some of those. But basically, they they use a computer model to make their mouth move. That's it.
0: Right. I could have predicted that, really, like how you make it look like an animal's talking in a film.
1: Like you probably could have predicted all of Santa Buddies if you watched it. Um, (laughs) Although I think the thing that maybe you couldn't predict is what happened on the set of the predecessor of that film, Snow Buddies. It's really horrible. Oh, no. Did a dog die? Not one, Helen. Five. Oh
0: um, shit. Yeah. How did they manage that?
1: This is sad, but I had an entertaining hour looking at the website of the American Humane Association for the answer to this question. Mm. So you, you know the group they, they put on the end of the film, no animal was harmed in the making of this film. Right. That disclaimer you only get if the American Humane Association come to your film set, supervise the action, and indeed decree that no animal has been harmed. In the case of Snow Buddies, they couldn't put that. It simply says, American Humane monitored the animal action. And if you go to the website, you find out why. Uh, It's that five of the puppies were killed on set because there was a virus which they noticed too late It was February in British Columbia when they were filming it, so it spread quickly amongst all the puppies who had travelled to the set by plane for over 3,000 miles, then by car, a trip of longer than 12 hours, and in cold weather as well, because Canada. And then it turned out that they were younger than they should have been. They were six-week-old puppies rather than eight-week-old puppies. um, Which the makers blamed on the breeder and the breeder blamed on the makers. But essentially, yeah, dead dogs in that franchise. Not nice. Oh,
0: my God they just replace them with other puppies?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, they have like, you know, 60 puppies on set. But still, to lose five in a kid's uh, film, not good.
0: Now that would get a lot more attention, I think. I think,
1: yeah, well, this is just ever so slightly pre-internet, I guess, in terms of people following up on this stuff.
0: But as far as we know, the death count on Santa Buddies is... (laughs) Zero. Okay, good.
1: Although I did enjoy this sentence from the American Humane Association's devastating critique of Snow Buddies. Uh, Bee dog and puppy paws break dancing and spinning near a boombox was achieved using CGI. (laughs) Oh, good news. Yeah, just in case you were worried that all that break dancing they made the puppies do might have been bad for their spine. (laughs) But I guess, you know, the history of animals being used in films... Like, the reason that they have the American Humane Association monitoring the action is because lots of animals did die. Like, Ben-Hur famously killed... A Hundred Horses, I think it was, making that film. All of those westerns where horses went over cliffs, you know, that wasn't trick photography then. They killed the horse because there was no way to... There was no special effects. That's what they had to do to get that shot.
0: Or they could have written a different plot.
1: There are some recent animal atrocities as well that I've been reading about.
0: Oh, great. Merry Christmas.
1: (laughs) These are accidents, but have a think about this in case you're going to watch any of these light-hearted movies this Mm. Christmas time. According to The Hollywood Reporter, uncontested as far as I can see by the studios concerned, Uh, A chipmunk was fatally squashed in the 2006 Matthew McConaughey, Sarah, Jessica Parker romantic comedy, Failure to Launch.
0: I have not seen it and therefore do not know what the chipmunk's role in the film was.
1: I I assume just a joke shot, but um, it was on set. The handler was playing with the chipmunk. It was on their shoulder and then it got squashed. Mm. I think someone stepped on it. In 2003, over four days during the filming of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl crew members had taken no precautions to protect marine life when they set off special effects explosions in the ocean, killing dozens of fish and squid. Hmm. It's hard to care about squid, I I feel.
0: They're mesmerising creatures.
1: I mean, this is where the American Humane Association has an issue, I suppose. Everyone wants to make sure the puppies are looked after. I'm not sure people care about the squid. I guess if you have a humane association, they have to represent all animals. The one I was worried about uh, was Mr. Ed. Yeah. Because I was thinking, okay, so if animals moving their mouths basically started with Babe, what about the decades of films before where animals moved their mouths? You know, uh, Dr. Doolittle. And then I thought, what about Mr. Ed? Like One of the biggest stars of TV in the 60s, a horse that could talk. How did they make Mr. Ed's mouth move?
2: Well, horses are quite intelligent animals. There's that famous uh, horse that could count, but obviously it couldn't count. It was just taking cues from its owner. And also, like I've seen Mr. Ed, it's not very convincing. Mr. Ed is saying like, "Oh, I'd like some some hay," and the mouth is going whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. like it's not a
1: very close lip sync. Nonetheless, the m- the mouth is moving in days when we know the technology didn't exist to manipulate that frame by frame. So, how did they do it?
2: They probably just trained him to, like, move his mouth when he got a sugar cube or something. You'll you'll be
1: reassured to know, Martin, that indeed, in later seasons, (laughs) he had learned to wag his lips whenever his hoof was touched, because he was Mr. Ed. Ah. That was his day job. (laughs) So they did find a way to get him to do that. But for the first season, it was a wire. They tied a wire to his gums. Oh. Oh, no. And then you think, God, it's a sitcom. Like, he's not happy in this sitcom. He's Matthew Perry.
0: Are you suggesting Matthew Perry's mouth was moved by a wire? (laughs) I
1: wouldn't be surprised. Some of those later episodes, I mean, he's dead behind the eyes, but the mouth is still moving. He had a very rough time during the filming of Friends. He did. But it was probably rougher for Mr. Ed, to be fair. Helen, Oliver, though life is full of questions, there are answers you must know. One, no. It will not fall off, but
0: moderation in all things, too. Yes, there probably is, but we won't find out in our lifetimes. Three, most people prefer connery, but my personal favorite is Dalton, for if you try and slip a one, it would ruin your friendship.
1: If you're enjoying this episode of Festive Questions and you want to hear even more, um, such as how to salvage the situation if your partner's bought you a brilliant present and you got them something shit, Mm. then do check out the Answer Me This Christmas album.
0: Yes, it's one hour of very interesting festive questions. It's evergreen,
1: like the uh, toilet brush trees. Or, Or the Will Young song.
0: Not his best. Wasn't that a Westlife cover?
1: <laughs> I think it was, yes.
0: It's No Leave Right Now. Damn right. If you're talking about evergreen Will Young songs, or that one with the video directed by Baz Luhrmann, Your Game, that's it. Oh yeah, that's
1: quite good, yeah. Yeah, but still, No Leave Right Now. I mean, Leave Right Now was the peak, wasn't it?
0: But anyway, uh, back to The Answer Me This Christmas, Oh yeah, which is an hour of uh, relevant every year festive questions.
1: And it's yours for under three pounds when you buy it directly from us at AnswerMeThisStore.com. Although if you do buy it from Amazon for an extra 49 pence, which we'll never see...
0: That's how Jeff Bezos got so rich.
1: <laughs> you might nonetheless help boost our place in the album charts. I did check it out today. Previously a top 10 smash, the Answer Me This Christmas album. Uh, we are currently at number 17,151. That's the desired spot. <laughs> We're culty, like we don't need to be in the top 17,000. We, we like to keep it cool. <laughs> Here's a question from Aaron from Suffolk. He says, Being a frugal sort, I've been planning my Christmas purchases for my close family very carefully. But in some more extended cases, I am going to resort to making or creating presents rather than buying. Yeah, not a last resort in your view, Helen.
0: Love it. My brother used to stay up late on Christmas Eve making cassette tapes for everyone in the family because
1: (laughs) inevitably he had not been to the shops. So Helen, answer me this. What is the best non-bought present you've ever received from someone?
0: I've got a few handmade Christmas decorations that people have given me, and I love those because you also get to see them once a year. So they keep their novelty value. Mm. And I'm like, oh, a friend, and it's just part of a fun collection. So some of my favorites there my brother made me a bunch of Christmas decorations out of cigarette cards with injuries on, <laughs> <laughs> like different bandaging techniques. And uh, my friend Ellie made me some baubles with different podcasters on.
1: Wow. Yes. Like who? Uh,
0: Glyn Washington from Snap Judgment's on there. Erin Mankey from Law. Caitlin Prest. Mm. That was a hell of a present.
1: That sounds like a business on Etsy.
0: That could be her sideline
1: uh, if she weren't already quite busy with her real job. I don't think anyone close to me has ever given me a handmade present, really. But um, Have but-
0: I not given you some, like, bullshit that I made?
1: N- no, and in fact... Hmm. I've dropped subtle hints to you previously that I'd like you to make me a handmade thing, but you never have. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd very much like to have, uh, when you were going through that phase of doing your uh, Robert Plant puppets and stuff, I was like, yeah, I'll have me some of that. But um, Yeah,
0: although Robert Plant did take like a week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's what make. I wanted,
1: Helen. I wanted a week of your time.
0: Okay, did you want meatloaf?
1: I mean, yes, obviously. Yeah, that would be great. But people that I don't know that well have, bizarrely, Jenny Jones, the uh, Green Party member of the House of Lords. Um, mm. <laughs> she used to be a guest on my radio show. Yeah, I've been on a radio show with Jenny Jones. Have you? She's very nice. She uh, bought me a pot of homemade jam.
0: My friend Marie found a uh, George Orwell's recipe for marmalade and oh, gave yeah. me a jar of it. And I kept it because it felt like something I shouldn't open and use mm. because then I wouldn't have it anymore. Uh, so that's the problem with giving me jam. But um, I think that is quite a good present, particularly if you can make a nice label for things like jams or homemade biscuits or something.
1: My interests tend to the savoury, as you know. Yeah. And um, I, it makes me feel like it's an inappropriate present. I don't feel like I could, even if I put it in a nice jar with a ribbon, really give someone yes. some of my garam masala or pesto. It just doesn't feel right.
0: Well, but if you were like making slow gin or blackberry gin or something like that, where there was effort implied because you would have had to plan it several months ahead, but it's fairly low cost.
1: Yeah, stuck some blackberries in a bottle of gin.
0: Right, and then make a pretty label. yeah. Here's a question from Maria in Manchester who says, Ollie, answer me this. How does Post get to people on ships, specifically in the Merchant Navy? I want to send my friend an advent calendar as he's offshore for months at a time. A while ago, he gave me the address of the company's HQ in the UK so I can send it via them. But then how does it get to him? And am I allowed to send a chocolate advent calendar? Is there anything I can't send or is it just the usual Royal Mail restrictions?
1: That is categorically not the usual Royal Mail restrictions, no. Okay. And how does the post get to people on ships? I mean, the answer is plain, basically. Plain and then loaded on at ports. Right. But you are right that to get a parcel to your friend of any kind, you'd need to go through his company's HQ in the first instance. So you need to know what ship he's on from them, which shipping company to contact from them, then you'll need to find the address and or phone number to contact them and ask their protocols because each shipping company is going to have different uh, regulations about what is allowed on board and you'll need to find out uh, about port dates to be able to actually get the post onto the ship.
0: Well, like I was saying earlier... Maybe do a website for an advent calendar instead, (laughs) because that's more likely
1: to get to him. Well, no, I think it's possible. There's just a bit of planning. And I should say, actually, Mm. for those of you who don't know, like the difference between the Merchant Navy and the Royal Navy, which is part of the armed forces. So the Merchant Navy is a network of private shipping companies. So they're transporting goods and food and stuff like that to and from Britain. They're basically commercial operations, but technically they could be called upon in the event of war to support the Royal Navy. So that's why they're the Merchant Navy. Otherwise, they're just privately run ships. So depending on what company he works for, it should be fairly straightforward to find out what you can send. However, if it were the Royal Navy, you'd need to send it via the BFPO, the British Forces Post Office. And they, unsurprisingly... Uh, since they have people on board with guns and who need to be (laughs) available in an emergency, they have many restrictions. I asked my friend Laura, who works for the British Forces Broadcasting Service, about this, Ah. and she forwarded us a 10-page PDF about what is restricted. Wow. Examples are uh, jazz mags, (laughs) by which I mean porn, not saxophones. Um, (laughs) Also banned. And that's that's (laughs) actually not because they don't want you to masturbate, it's because they don't want to offend the cultural values of a nation you might be sailing through. You can't have aerosols. You can have alcohol, which is 24% by volume or less. Hmm. You can't have guns, including imitations, Fair. antiques, or toy guns. Okay. Uh, th- this is not a surprise when I say it, but you wouldn't necessarily think about it and send it innocently. Can't have Christmas crackers or party poppers this time of year.
0: Right. Uh, so
1: explosives. Basically, but yeah. Fine. You're not allowed to send dry ice. I think it's amazing they have to specify mm. that. Can you imagine saying, you know, I'm really missing you, uh, can you please send me enough equipment so I can <laughs> film my own meatloaf video on board? I mean, why would you, why would now you I'm imagining it, yes. That would be fucking incredible. <laughs> also, I note, you're not allowed to send medical waste or contaminated needles. So don't send one of those medical waste advent calendars, whatever you do. But there are no restrictions on chocolate or advent calendars. Great. So I figure if you can do that with the Royal Navy via the bfpo which is more restrictive then yes you will certainly be able to send a chocolate advent calendar to your friend in the merchant navy you just need to get all of your ducks in a row
0: and also probably do it sometime before this podcast comes out in december
1: actually not necessarily so again look at the deadlines for the bfpo which are probably comparable with the merchant navy some destinations have been so like sierra leone was the 25th of november um but some are the 6th of december so like most places in the world you can get a package to the Royal Navy on the 6th of December so I reckon Merchant Navy you you could just about do it
0: well Advent has already begun though that's true there is
1: that although it's a good time to get a cut price Advent calendar isn't it good point (laughs) good point (laughs) really thinking of you (laughs) it's a discounted Advent calendar
2: when you're Other sources are no help, or meet with disapproval. Where can you go when your mum doesn't know and you can't be asked to Google? Answer me this podcast at GoogleMail.com 0208 123 5877 0208 123
1: Five eight double seven, oh two oh double seven. Right, time for a question from Layla in Australia. She's got me on my knees, etc. She says, "I will be spending Christmas alone this year. My husband passed away last year, and I've chosen not to go to the bother of visiting family. I'm looking forward to spending the day alone with just my dog for company." And some would argue that would mean, of course, that you're not alone, really.
0: Alone human-wise.
1: I will enjoy relaxing and indulging in some nice food, etc. Sounds pretty great. So Helen, answer me this. When people say, what are you doing for Christmas? How do I tell them, without sounding lonely and pathetic and then getting invites to other people's Christmases, that I have no wish to attend? (laughs) I am not lonely or pathetic and I will enjoy my Christmas day very much.
0: I bet a lot of listeners can identify with this. I think you could preempt it with your tone, And just be like, oh my God, I'm really looking forward to it. It's just going to be me and the dog and this is the thing I'm going to eat and this is the thing I'm going to watch. Yes. And what are you going to do? Like flip the question back to them as quickly as possible. But I think if you preface whatever you're doing with your enthusiasm for that and if you make it sound like there's a solid plan and that loneliness is not part of that plan, then... They have uh, fewer directions to go with it that will annoy you. Agree. They can't really be like, oh, are you okay? Yeah. I'm just worried about you alone, blah, blah, blah.
1: What are you doing this year? I bet you're looking forward to not being burdened by any widows.
0: That's the thing, isn't it? When other people try to express sympathy for losing your husband, but they open up a situation where you have to kind of manage their emotions, even though it's your emotions (laughs) that are the important ones. And I understand that maybe they're like, I want to be a good friend and I I don't want Leila to be on her own, Mm. but maybe she's too shy to ask... But if you're being a good friend, I think you can say, well, if uh, you change your mind, you're very welcome to us. But I'll just leave that open there and like not mention it again.
1: I think that's right. I think actually, this is a useful question, not really for Layla, although Layla, thank you for writing in. I'm sorry to hear about your husband. I actually think this is a really useful question to hear for everyone else who might be in the situation yeah. of someone who's lost someone talking to them because I think it would be the wrong conclusion to conclude from this, by the way, that you shouldn't invite them over because I'm sure for every Layla, there's someone else who really would love an invite.
0: Yeah, and doesn't want to have to to ask because they worry that they're a burden or something. Right. Or
1: that no one loves them. But I think it's really important to just consider they may be a Leila underneath and and in your answers listen really carefully when you offer them. I mean by all means offer. Say of course there's always a place at our house but don't labour the point.
0: Yeah, open invitations. The other options are telling a lie. So saying that you're going on vacation maybe or that you're volunteering somewhere. I do understand that it can be quite tasteless to lie about something like volunteering Or um, I asked my friend Jean, because Jean writes a lot about grief and how to handle it and how to deal with that situation where other people kind of dump their fucking emotions on you when you're just trying to deal with your own. Mm. And uh, she suggested inventing someone that you're going to spend the day with. So you can be (laughs) like, oh, well, I'm going to be with my friend Petunia. And they'll be like, I don't know Petunia. I don't want to invite Petunia. Mm. And I reckon you could have some fun inventing this massive backstory for Petunia.
1: Yeah, I quite like the volunteering idea, If because if you're someone who's not a mad fantasist, <laughs> I think um, people will think in response to that, like if you say, oh, I'm I'm going to a soup kitchen, so they'll say, oh, yeah. good, layla has got something to do. She's not alone, but she's doing a thing that's recognised as a thing you do on Christmas Day. And that's the thing, isn't it? There's yeah. so much burden of like in the press and in films and in songs and in just in general conversation, the idea that Christmas Day is a day of family and a day of community and a day of, you know, company... If you give them an alternative that means their mind's at rest, that you have been sated, it, it, it doesn't matter how you actually feel about it, does it? You have to anticipate how they think you feel.
0: Is another question about what to do on Christmas Day. Uh, it's from Josh from Chicago, Illinois, who says, My wife and I are taking my mother and sister on a trip to London for Christmas. Both my mother and sister are not the world travellers and go-getters that my wife and I are, so this trip's a big deal. And we're trying to fill our days up with great experiences in food, music, art and culture. No pressure then. mm it's going to be fine. <laughs> we will be there over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. As we're staying in a hotel and not visiting friends or family, we don't have any plans for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So Ollie, answer me this. Will anything even be open on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? What sort of fun things can we do? Christmas things would be fun, but they don't have to be Christmas related. I'm half Jewish, so I'm no stranger to Chinese restaurants on Christmas Day. Please help. That's an American trope, isn't it? The uh, Jewish people always order Chinese food on Christmas Day.
1: Yeah, it comes from the Lower East Side of New York and the Jews and oh. Chinese people living in close proximity.
0: Right, because that is also where Chinatown is yes. in Manhattan.
1: And uh, obviously Chinese restaurants be open on Christmas Day over there and catering kosher because there are lots of Jewish clientele. So that doesn't really happen yeah. in London. Although there are there are literally like two kosher Chinese restaurants in London, but it's not a thing. Really? Um,
0: uh, and there's a lot more stuff open in the USA on Christmas Day, I would say, than in Britain as well.
1: Yes. Although actually, I mean, uh, leaving aside the, the Jewish bit, Chinatown is not a bad shout because Chinatown is open on Christmas Day, or a lot of it. So if you are staying in the centre of London, uh, Chinatown might be a good place to go for dinner. Um, but for during the day, I've actually been in London every Christmas day for the last six years because I've been covering radio shows for people.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: The parking is amazing. <laughs> but that probably won't appeal to you.
0: <laughs> but that is the thing, though. If you do have a car driving around London, this is the day to do it. No other day is the day to do it. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, if you have hired a car, knock yourself out. But actually, even if if you want to take a cab, I mean, obviously the black cabs are more expensive because there's no public transport that day. Yeah. Um, but they they are still on the road. And you can go a lot further. So for 50 quid in a black cab on Christmas Day, you're going to see a lot of the city. Um, So that's obviously a fun thing to do for a tourist that's never been in a black cab before. Um, But one thing I have observed is uh, all the parks are open.
0: Yes. Josh hasn't said which area of London he's staying in, which would be instructive for us, because then we could suggest where they could walk to on christmas day but basically any of the parks will be pretty good and there'll be people around any of the parks so you can be like merry christmas in
1: fact the, the one to do although you have to be there at nine in the morning so it depends whether your jet lag has bitten uh is to go to the serpentine lake in hyde park because at 9 a.m every christmas day morning the members of the serpentine swimming club do the peter pan cup race
0: oh my god um,
1: which is a 100 yard swim it's been running since 1864 And the waters are somewhere below four degrees centigrade.
0: I would love to watch that.
1: You can't dive in and join in. You have to be a member of the Serpentine Swimming Club and qualify because otherwise you might die. But you can go and watch, right? But you, anyone can go and watch, spectators are welcome. Yes, uh, it's just next to the Serpentine Cafe. That sounds fun. Also, there is a Christmas Day lunch cruise happening. Uh, it is 167 pounds a ticket, but again, Shit. if you're I mean, imagine you're spending 500 pounds a night in your hotel room in central London on Christmas Day, so <laughs> that's going to be pretty memorable. It's something to do, you get a Christmas lunch as well. Think about that, great way to see London from the river.
0: I would imagine that that food is not going to be great because <laughs> I'd mean, I say London boat food doesn't have the best reputation. I,
1: I think that's fair
0: you would be better to buy yourself some sandwiches and eat them in a taxi that's going around london and that would be a lot cheaper
1: i can't really disagree but imagine yourself as his mother from illinois seeing st paul's from the river on christmas day that would be quite special wouldn't it
0: i would suggest that whatever you decide to do about food you will have to reserve meals ahead And they're all going to be basically the same. So just go for what's convenient and the room is
1: pretty. Well, the thing is you're staying in a hotel and that's what's open, hotels. So so if you don't like the restaurant that is in your hotel, look into other hotels and their restaurants because they will be open.
0: I would also do a nice walk around like all the Christmas lights and the Christmas windows, like the Fortnum windows, that kind of stuff. Now I'd go to a carol service or a midnight mass or something. Yeah. I've done that a bunch and I'm a not religious person, but it's just uh, pretty fun and the buildings are cool.
1: Tourist stuff, uh, the Body Worlds exhibition at Piccadilly Circus oh, no. is open. Um,
0: on, on Christmas Day? On
1: Christmas Day. It's open 365 oh, days a year. God. Uh, and also, because Jews, if you go to the ice rink at JW3, which is the Jewish centre in North London, uh, yeah. so from central London, probably £20 in a taxi, Uh, that ice rink is open on Christmas Day.
0: I would front load the treats for Christmas Eve, like maybe book a fancy tea, because I feel like that's a great way to win over mother and sister, particularly if they're jet lagged.
1: Yeah, Claridge's, I'd say.
0: Oh, I mean, that's the fanciest.
1: And best Christmas tree in London often.
0: And possibly also go to Sadler's Wells, because you can get some really cheap tickets there, so it doesn't matter if you didn't enjoy it, if it's 12 quid each. And they've got the Snowman or Matthew Bourne's The Red Shoes.
1: Also, talking about theatre, I mean, he hasn't mentioned... Uh, the 26th of December, but possibly that's because he's not in London or possibly it's because he's an American. He doesn't see the significance of mentioning the 26th of December, but um, the 26th of December is Boxing Day, which is a national holiday here.
0: Everything is also closed on the 26th and most of the transport doesn't run.
1: But also specifically and historically, the day Victorians went to the theatre, that's a big thing. Mm. So most of the theatres doing Christmas shows are open on Boxing Day. Uh, and I, if I was an American tourist, I would definitely go and see a panto, because if you want a big box of what the fuck, a pantomime is you will not understand what <laughs> is going on. It's like the equivalent of going to a baseball match, basically, for a Brit, isn't it?
0: I would just direct you to the implication in his question that he wants his mother and sister to have a good time.
1: No, I think Panther amazing. Oh, you have a good time at Panther. No, I think yeah. you definitely have a good time. It's so it's so British. Yes. You know, it will be a memory that you will you will keep because you won't understand what's just happened to you. And there are tickets uh, at the moment on Boxing Day evening mm-hmm. to go and see Paula Grady and Julian Clary doing Goldilocks at the Palladium. I mean, I think anyone from Chicago will be completely mystified by that. Well, I hope that this episode was a big Christmas present for you listeners.
0: I hope so, and that it wasn't a dry old turkey or,
1: sh- or shit in the bed
0: <laughs> please send us questions for the new year of answer me this the
1: 14th year of answer me this
0: fuck fuck <laughs> god <laughs> i was thinking back to when we did episode 200 which was also our fifth anniversary and i was like five years we kept the podcast going for five years and i was like yeah and it's been going for 13 years now fucking hell we're gonna
1: be an adolescent next year oh moody
0: Oh, same old. (laughs) But some things never change with the podcast. We need your questions. So email us, record voice memos. You can call us. It's a little more unreliable than the voice memos, but all of our contact details are on our website. AnswerMeThisPodcast.com
1: And particularly over the Christmas periods. You might want to check out our other material.
0: Yes, because you need stuff to drown out the sound of your family arguments, right?
1: Absolutely. I do uh, five podcasts. You can discover them all at olliman.com. Uh, but actually, the one that I would like to highlight for a second month's running is the Media Podcast because uh, after I plugged it in the November episode, somewhat sheepishly saying, look, this is probably only for you if you work in media in the UK and if you're a bit of a geek, uh, listener D got in touch with me via Instagram to say, "Ollie, I'm Australian. I have nothing professionally to do with any kind of media, but I find it really interesting and I never miss an episode. That's a good accolade. Uh, There you go. So there are people out there. You could be one in the future. If you are interested in things like gossip about the newspapers going digital and disney competing with netflix and the royal family suing the tabloids that's the sort of stuff we talk about every fortnight there's a new episode at themediapodcast.com uh helen your podcast
0: the illusionist is an entertainment show about language it's very fun there's also a bunch of good christmas episodes in the back catalogue there's one about why dickens became the kind of emblem of christmas oh
1: wow There's a thesis you could write about that.
0: I had someone on the show that has written that
1: thesis.
0: (laughs) Uh, There's one about uh, why we send Christmas cards and how the earliest Christmas cards had like slabs of bacon stuck to them. There's one about Winterval, that fun festive fuck up of the 90s. (laughs) But uh, all of those are at theillusionist.org. And also I do uh, the Veronica Mars recap podcast, Veronica Mars Investigations, which is very funny. And uh, also you can watch the TV show Veronica Mars and then listen to the podcast, thus taking care of a lot of the festive period without having to interact with anyone. That's at
1: vmipod.com. There's some excellent Martin Oswick content for you as well. Yeah, there is. I'm coming to the end of
2: Year of the Bird. In, uh, last year, I recorded 40 songs while we're travelling around the world, and I've been releasing them this year. And by Christmas, they will all be out, 40 songs. You don't have to get them all. You can listen to the podcast and you know get the songs for free. And then if you decide you like them, go to palebirdmusic.com and, uh, and buy them.
1: And in the meantime, remember our first 200 episodes and all five of our exclusive albums, including Answer Me This Christmas, are out now at Apple, Amazon, and com.
0: Halfway through this month, we will have a retro Answer Me This that lands in your feed, and then we'll be back with the first new Answer Me This of 2020 on the 9th of January. I
1: don't think there's anything left to say apart from Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Winterville and whatever you're celebrating. Have a good one.
0: And to you. Bye. Bye.